Well, welcome. I am so glad you chose to be here on Independence Day. Traditionally, this is the least attended Sunday of the year. So yes, you folks chose to come when most people chose not to. I am excited to be able to share with you some truth from God's Word, some things that I think will energize you and encourage you. We've been in the book of Acts, so many of you know that. Uh, It's the biblical history of the church. Dr. Luke describes the birth and the growth of the church. And for most people, that probably isn't that exciting. But for us, We know the church is what God is using as his vehicle to be able to proclaim himself throughout all of our world. That's exciting. It's exciting because we get to be part of that mission. We get to be salt and light in our world. We get to proclaim good news to all people. The good news that Jesus died for you and for me. And that if we put our faith in Jesus, that we have new life, abundant now and eternal. This is life that changes individuals, life that changes families. How cool that we get to be part of that mission. Most of you know, as we've gone through the book of Acts, there's some key players. There's John, and there's Peter, and there's Stephen, and Philip, and Cornelius, and Rhoda, and Barnabas, and Silas, and Lydia, and Priscilla, and Aquila, and most recently, our focus has been on Paul. Paul is just ending his second missionary trip, and he's in Corinth right now. We were in Acts chapter 18 last week, and we find Paul faithfully working next to Aquila and Priscilla, tent makers or leather workers, and meeting in the synagogues, convincing Jews that the Messiah had come. And then eventually unleashed to preach to everywhere. He's faithfully sharing God's word. But we find out in the very beginning that most oppose him and insult him. So the scriptures tell us that he shakes the dust off his clothing and goes next door. This is kind of cool because just a few feet over, the response is absolutely different. Many people come to faith, and the scriptures tell us that they even want to be baptized right away. This is the Acts Church, the church we want to become. It's a community faithfully working and convincing and preaching and sharing good news with those around them in a natural and a normal way. It's a church led by the Spirit, bearing Spirit fruit and experiencing Spirit life. It ought to be the most dynamic place around, the most amazing family experience. That's the church 
that God is encouraging and strengthening and modeling for us right here in Acts. Last week, though, we found that Paul is discouraged. He's weary. I mean, most of us have the idea that Paul's the energizer bunny, right? And nothing really stops him. It just doesn't matter. And really, he's kind of supernatural. Well, Paul is supernatural as he listens and, and is empowered by the Spirit. But, but at least at this time, he was discouraged. The battle had been fierce. But just at the right time, God speaks to him. And God's word energizes him. God does the same thing for us today. Sometimes the battle gets overwhelming. Sometimes the, the enemy seems to be winning. But then his people, his kids... Go to our Lord, listen to his word, apply, trust him that he is in control. And they are energized because the power of God's word transforms us. We talk about getting in the word every day. We encourage you to spend time with God every day. Not because you get some brownie points. Brownie points don't matter. But because if you or I don't do that, we don't hear from God. We're not strengthened. We're not empowered. We're not given what we need to for that day. Paul then stays 18 months in the city of Corinth. Imagine having Paul as your pastor, as your teacher, 18 months. These people loved it. They were growing in God's grace. But eventually Paul went back home to his home church way back to Antioch. Now before we jump into the story today, before we continue this amazing story of the church, let's pray. Father, we do come to you often. And even this day, we have had the opportunity to publicly from the platform be able to talk to you, the almighty God, the unbelievably powerful God, the creator God, the God who is king, the God who is sovereign, yet the God who cares, the God that knows each one of us, the God that loves us, the God who is merciful, a God who walks with us. That alone blows our mind, Lord. We don't understand why we are that critical or important to you. We don't know of anybody that can, well, I guess identify millions of people, even billions. But you are God. And we want to thank you. We want to thank you more than we want to complain. Because our normal response is to complain. So God, change us from the inside out. We thank you. We thank you for the ministries you've given us. We thank you for this church. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you even for this time at this place that we get to live in this country. We thank you for all those things, Father. And we pray that you would, well, move in us today. 
that your spirit would be so abundantly active. And we know your spirit is, but sometimes we are, well, we're preoccupied. We're busy. There's sin in our lives. There's grudges that we're holding. There's a lack of forgiveness for others. Maybe even today, Father, in the car, on the way here, there were some uh, unkind words spoken. Oh, God, we need to hear from you today. We repent, we confess, and we ask you, Lord, to change us. I was so encouraged this week, Lord, as I met together with a group of other converged pastors, as we shared what you are doing in the churches, as we committed again to trust you for the future. God, you are at work, and we thank you for our conference and our group of churches, not only here in this area, but really all over the states, all over the world. We pray for all churches, Lord, that are proclaiming your word, that are teaching, that are praising you, that are adoring you, for you are king. Ignite us, God. Give us your power, your authority. Lord, we pray in particular for Casa de Oracion. What a privilege to go into their new building, a building that we as a church had the opportunity to encourage them and support them. Oh God, this is a smaller group of believers that, that are ignited for you. And we pray your blessing on them and on Pastor Abram as, as they reach out, especially in the Round Lake area. God, we are full. Every week that I get to open up Acts, I am just overwhelmed by your grace. I am thankful that you have called your church, that you have called this church, that we, God, have an opportunity to be able to proclaim good news. We thank you, Father, and ask you to teach us today that nobody, nobody would go out exactly the same that there would be inspiration, there would be conviction, and that there would be a fresh and a new encouraged and invigorated body of Christ. We do love you, Lord. We do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, after a bit, the third missionary journey begins. Paul's been on one. He is now coming back from two, but he is heading out in the third journey. So if you would, you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We're going to start at verse 23 and read through verse 28. You can follow along in your Bibles. You can follow along on the screen behind me. But I've asked my friend Gary to be able to read for us Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 23. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul went back through Galatia and Phrygia, visiting and strengthening all the believers. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, 
They took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia, and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia, asking them to welcome him. When he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who, by God's grace, had believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. This is so interesting. At least the first missionary trip, it seemed like the church at Antioch, they had these prayer meetings and there was this kind of great send-off. And I think that often happens in the beginning of ministries, right? The second missionary journey didn't seem to, well, have that much pomp and circumstance. It, it seemed, again, a little bit more normal. There was actually a little bit of a conflict. And, and Paul and Silas headed out and served God again in these different territories. Now the third missionary journey. The third missionary trip. It again, there's not a lot of, shall we say, um, hoopla that's going on. In fact, what I'm noticing is normal just happens. That's all. I think Paul missed some of the cities in Galatia and Phrygia. I, I think he did. I think he had started the churches there and he knew that the believers were there and realistically he goes, you know what? I need to go back. I need to go back and strengthen them. I need to go back and encourage them. I know that walking with God is sometimes so difficult, so overwhelming. You know what? I just want to go back. I just want to encourage them. The churches he planted in Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Pisidia and Antioch all must have felt thrilled to see him. Luke states that he strengthened all the believers along the way. But Paul had Ephesus on his mind. Remember last week he had just dabbed his toe or dipped his toe into the Ephesus pool. And, and they wanted him to stay longer. But he said, no, 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 I, I, I need to go back. And no one knows how long exactly, but, but he did go back. But he says, I want to come back. I want to come back to this city, to you believers. This is a key spot. So I don't think he actually stayed long in any of these churches because he wanted to get to Ephesus. Meanwhile, while Paul was up there traveling, we get introduced to Apollos. And Apollos comes to Ephesus. Let's look at verse 24 once again. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism. When Priscilla and Aquila, remember those were the folks that were working with Paul, all right, tent making, heard him preach boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. <laughs> Apollos was trained. 
And he taught people about Jesus. And the word translated eloquent here really means learned or cultured or able to articulate what he has learned. Qualities actually people would expect from, well, those who have been educated in Alexandria. That doesn't make much sense to us, but Alexandria was a political and intellectual capital city of Egypt. And besides, Rome was probably one of or the most important city in the world. So a teacher from Alexandria would have carried considerable influence, not like a Ph.D. from Harvard, Yale, Stanford, or Oxford. To some of you, doesn't mean a thing. But to those in academia, you being educated at these schools, other than draining your bank account completely, all right, are supposed to be able to give you maybe something that no other school could give you. Now, the scriptures tell us Apollos was enthusiastic and accurate. Isn't that a great description? You know, sometimes those who are enthusiastic and aren't so accurate. My wife says that sometimes about someone up here. I find it hard to believe how you can not be accurate sometimes. All right. But, but this was Apollos. Now, he had limited knowledge. Now the problem, and and I just want to say this, and we don't focus a lot on this, but translations, almost all the English translations differ here. It probably should be understood fervent in spirit or a glow in spirit. And I think especially if you're in the NLT, in the very bottom, there's an alternative NLT rendering. And I think it's preferable here. I think it's with enthusiasm in the spirit. In other words, Apollo, Apollos was more, Apollo, Apollos was more than an excited chap. He was aglow with the spirit. Because he walked with God, he was excited. It wasn't that he was just a spirited young man that had lots of energy. But Aquila and Priscilla notice something. And the scriptures tell us they take him aside and school him. You know, back when I was growing up and you'd be at the park, there would always be some guys, some older, some more coordinated, some really refined basketball players that would love to school you, would love to rub your face in the fact that they just (laughs) scored. This is not the schooling that Aquila and Priscilla did. It isn't. It would be more like an older mentor who has a bunch of maybe 6th, 7th, 8th graders that are learning how to play basketball. And this person would get down on their knees and would show them different moves and the abilities and some basics and saying, hey, you're just not skilled in some areas, so let me help you. I think this was the attitude that Aquila and Priscilla had. 
And what's so cool is that Apollos actually was teachable, and we're going to see really valuable. Apollos had an education way beyond Aquila or Priscilla, but he listened. Priscilla and Aquila gave a good model of how high-capacity teachers ought to be corrected. In fact, anyone. They didn't rebuke Apollos publicly. They didn't embarrass or shame him. They demonstrated humility and compassion in addressing him. That is, they just didn't let a matter of his deficiency go. Instead, they addressed the gap in his instruction in a Christ God-honoring way, and they took him aside and gently explained baptism more fully. Aquila and Priscilla needed to explain baptism more accurately. And we don't get all of the details, but it seems to me that Apollos understood, he believed, and he preached the gospel of Christ, but he knew nothing of the water baptism's rich symbol, uh, symbolic um, procedures. Nothing. The symbolism was missed. You see, John's baptism showed repentance of sin and openness to God. A Christian's baptism, somebody who is immersed under the water and comes out of the water, symbolizes our new life. We were dead in our trespasses under the water. But because of faith in Jesus, we come up out of the water alive, identified with Jesus as a child of God. Now, Priscilla and Aquila were sensitive to the Holy Spirit and gently strengthened the church by strengthening Apollos. Now, I also think we can learn much from Apollos' attitude and response. Uh, think about it. Again, the guy was way more educated, but he remained teachable. He listened to their counsel. He adopted their position. And I think this is a reminder that every one of us are always in a position to learn from God's word. Sometimes a little child teaches you. Sometimes someone who is less educated teaches you. But no matter how long we've been Christians or how many degrees we actually hold, I think all of us can learn from God's Word. Now, I just want to say this. This is discipleship at its best. All the way through, almost every passage, as we open up the book of Acts, the church is modeling what making disciples who make disciples look like. There's always a concern, whether it's Paul going back through the churches, making sure that these believers are being strengthened and encouraged. Paul took the time to do that. Even right now, a very gifted speaker is being shown, hey, let me teach you. Let me help you. Let me encourage you. And they spend time together. 
I think sometimes because it's emphasized so much in the book of Acts, we may forget about it. But honestly, every time it comes up, I hope your hearts are pricked. I hope you ask yourself, who am I pouring into? How can I pour into somebody? How can I help others on this journey? What is it that I might be able to do to encourage them, to strengthen them, and then help them make disciples of others? This is God's plan. This is what God is modeling over and over and over in the early church. But here's something that happens. The scriptures tell us that Apollos, although this is all really going well in Ephesus, he is drawn to Achaia, or basically Corinth. He's thinking about Corinth. Let me read verses 27 in 28. Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia. And the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia and asked him to welcome him. When he arrived there, he proved to be a great benefit to those who, by God's grace, had believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments and public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, if we can understand actually what's going on here, is that the believers there, although they had Apollos, what an amazing teacher, they loved him tremendously. Apollos shared one morning, you know, I, I, I think I need to go to Corinth. And none of them, at least that we can tell, took Apollos aside and said, hey, wait a minute, this ministry is huge. <laughs> hey, don't go to Corinth. Those people, no, no, I... I think this showed us something. I really do. I, I think this shows kingdom thinking. Believers unselfishly setting him up well. It's going to be a great encouragement for these believers. We'll even write letters for you. We know those. And again, remember, or Priscilla and Aquila were living there for 18 months. They knew the church well. Imagine getting a letter from Aquila or Priscilla saying, hey, I'm sending you. He's an amazing guy. He loves the Lord. What a teacher. He will encourage you. Welcome him. But it still had to leave a gap. But those who walk with God, those who are spirit-led, recognize that the kingdom is important, not individual churches. And so they encourage him to go. You know, I think over the years, at least of being a pastor, I've had opportunities to be able to train or watch young people get trained. And, and sometimes they come back home and sometimes they stay at your home church and sometimes there's unbelievable ministry that is happening and, and then they walk into your office with their face. You know, that face like, I think God wants me to go somewhere else. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, excuse me. Time out. We're not listening to the same God, I'm sure. No, no. I, I think God moves people. 
And I think, again, as we all walk with God, we recognize that there's times to say goodbye to good people because God is calling them different ministries or different churches. And I think this actually is what happened here. And and then we read, Apollos was a great benefit to the Corinthian believers for their encouragement and their growth. He went there and were able to encourage that church. And also for their evangelism. It says here, he powerfully refuted the Jews publicly. His ability to talk was amazing. And he was able to stand up to maybe some Jews who were struggling with who the Messiah was. I put it this way. I think he had the gift of refute. Now, some of us think we have the gift of refute at home, okay? But I think this was an honest gift, a a, a gift where he was able to be in an atmosphere of really ungodly kind of folks or folks who were searching and for him not to get rattled or not to get, um, uh, shall I say, uh, discombobulated. And he was able to focus. He used the scriptures. He understood the scriptures. And he explained that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, if we look at this, and I don't want to spend a lot of time, but many of you know the history of the Corinthian church. And this sounds so wonderful. Is that Apollos was one of the leaders. Apollos came and strengthened the believers. Apollos came and evangelized the neighborhood in Corinth. Yet, in this Corinthian church, which I would call an immature church, we find that the diversity of leadership caused disharmony and division. We find that those who are part of the corner of the church like certain leaders, and it divided the congregation. So we like Apollos. Yeah, he's the teacher. No, we like Paul. Oh, no, we like Cephas or Peter. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes this, Apollos watered what Paul had planted. But Paul was really quick to point out it wasn't about the leaders. It was about God who literally gave the growth. The Lord greatly used Paul and Apollos in the, in the lives of young believers in Corinth. No doubt about it. They literally, even though at different styles, served as co-workers. Each one had their strength. And in fact, if, if we know at any of the history, we have Paulus, who was a silver-tongued orator, and Paul, who was a little bit more of a stuttering, bumbling theologian. Who'd you rather listen to? (laughs) Some say Apollos. Oh, I want to go deeper. Ah, Paul. Let's figure this out. Well, Paul assigns all the glory, not to the messengers, but to God. Meanwhile, meanwhile, this story continues. All this is going on, and Apollos was in Corinth, and while he was in Corinth, let's turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. 
And we're going to start reading in verse 1 and go through verse 7. I've asked my best friend to read this text, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast, where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience, he asked. And they replied, the baptism of John. Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. All right, we find at this time that Paul enters Ephesus. Remember, he had just dabbled before. So now he finally makes it to this city. And if you were with us last week, I described Ephesus as a city maybe like Los Angeles in our country. A very popular culture, an occultic kind of an atmosphere. But the scriptures tell us here, he walks into L.A., or he walks into Ephesus, and he finds several believers, at least in our translation. The word literally is disciple. And if you write in your Bibles, at least this may help you understand a little bit better. I actually think these are John the Baptizer's disciples. And all the way through the scriptures, you'll see that John had different disciples follow him around. And I think, actually, these are John the Baptizer disciples. Now, Luke typically uses the Greek term for disciple, methetes, all right, that's the Greek word, to refer to believers. But in this case, it denotes Jews who had responded positively to John's, John the Baptist's ministry, but who had not yet understood the person or the work of Jesus Christ. The word disciple simply means, although we attribute it to Jesus's all the time, but the word disciple simply means learner or follower. And when it's used in the New Testament, it does not always refer to Christians. Now Paul enters the city and he encounters some disciples. Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers, not just because he's Scottish, but because I think he brings truth, all right? He says this, unfortunately, these people weren't true disciples of Jesus. Rather, they were 12 almost Christians. Now let's look at this. Paul probably saw, as he saw these group of disciples, these 12 people, something in their behavior and demeanor which led them to ask the most important question. And honestly, this is a really important question. 
It must have been clear that this group didn't possess the Holy Spirit who dwells in all believers. We find that in John 14 and in Romans 8 and Galatians 3 and Ephesians chapter 1 and 3 and 4. Paul writes emphatically to the Romans in Romans chapter 8 verse 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to him. John Stott, another English theologian, he describes their condition like this. He said, these disciples were still living in the Old Testament, which culminated with John the Baptist. They understood that neither this new age had been ushered in by Jesus, nor that those who believe in him are baptized into him and receive the distinctive blessing of the new age, which is this indwelling spirit. Now, Paul didn't question or deny their sincerity. He didn't probe their theology. He didn't. Instead, he inquired and asked the question, have you received the Holy Spirit? That's a question I want you to ponder. God the Father responds to genuine trust in Jesus Christ by giving the gift of the Spirit always. So Paul asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Now it seems like an odd question to us, but I do think this is the question, not only of the morning, but it is a question that we need to ask. Does the Spirit of God have residence in you, and is there fruit in your life? Is there evidence that God's Spirit is living in you, in me? Because life changes when the Holy Spirit enters, and it continues to change you as we stay connected. You see, I think it's easy to spot people who walk with God. You're drawn to them. They love differently. They care about you differently. They forgive differently. They serve you differently. Because God changes us from the inside out. We don't see other people in the same way like we used to. We spend our time and our treasures and our talents differently because God moves us. We become less selfish and more others-oriented. And in this world, you will stick out and you are drawn to them. For who loves you like a person who walks with God? Now, their answer was, no, we don't know about the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul says, well, what baptism did you receive then? You know, apparently you'd been talking about it or whatever. He says, well, the baptism of John. Now, again, that seems like an odd dialogue unless you understand the context. Back in this first century, many desired to be right with God. So those who wanted to repent of their sins came to John and were baptized, period. 
John knew his baptism was symbolic and clearly taught that the Messiah was going to come with a greater baptism. So somehow these guys didn't understand it. In Luke chapter 3, John said this, As for me, I baptize you with water, but the one who is coming is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what's so cool at this moment, as you can see in the scriptures, as soon as they heard, as soon as they understood the gospel, as soon as that all came to an understanding. And we don't have a lot of details here. But we do know this. They came to faith right here. Because they were baptized. And in the New Testament, anyone who was baptized was baptized as a public declaration, as a public announcement that they have put their faith in Jesus and that they were a child of God. They once were dead and now they're alive. They responded and the scriptures say they were baptized critical in the walk in the journey of a believer to be able to publicly proclaim and identify with Jesus and that's what baptism does the scriptures tell us this that Paul laid his hands on them they received the Holy Spirit spoke in tongues and prophesied hmm these signs like those experienced by the believers in Samaria back in Acts chapter 8, were visible and public indicators that they were the children of God and that they possessed the Spirit. So the question comes, well, are folks who come to faith supposed to speak in tongues and prophesy after they become saved? Well, I can say this, is that this pattern is not universal in Acts. Not every convert experienced such manifestations. We have to remember, and I've said this often, that Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. Normally, the Holy Spirit takes up residence when faith in Jesus is activated. Then the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out and manifests His fruit. And it all happens at God's pace. Some you see, and, and, and it happens like around Christmas or, or maybe grandparents come in and they haven't seen their grandkids for, I don't know, six months, uh, half year, uh, you know, half year, six, yeah, I guess that's the same. Uh, and, and you know what happens? They say, oh, whoa, you've changed. You look like a young woman. You're very tall. You're whatever. And we notice. You know, I think, again, sometimes as we walk with God, those who live right around us, sometimes it's so incremental, we don't see it. But folks who have maybe not seen us for six months, whoa, the way you talk is different. You're kinder, you're more gracious. Wow, how do you forgive like you forgive? I don't remember that. When we were growing up, you never did this. Yeah, it's true. 
but God's working in my life. God's changing me. He's transforming me. Wow. Remember that God does the changes at his pace. Now we're almost done. But I just want to mention this. There were 12 men. And at the end, that may not seem like it's a very big deal. But I actually think these words are pretty important in the narrative, especially as I studied. I believe the church has already, in the book of Acts, embraced Jews. All right, that happened in Acts chapter 2. The Samaritans, another people group, that happened in Acts chapter 8. And then the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. All right? But now I think God is making a statement and gathering in the last group. And the last group, I would say, would be Old Testament saints. Those who were saved by faith before Jesus in God and trusting God in his promises that the Messiah was going to come because the Messiah hadn't come at that moment. But these 12 people, I think we're living almost in this Old Testament age And in this case, totally unaware that the Messiah had come. So now, all the groups were gathered in. In each case, apostles were present to verify that all received the same Holy Spirit in the same way. And from this time forward, the Holy Spirit would indwell every person at the time of of their salvation, just as the apostles taught the epistles. Now, this is a great story. It really is as we, as we kind of wrap this up. The early church was inspiring. It was convicting. And there's some things that jump out. Water baptism was really important. In our text, it talks about baptism in two different episodes. It's a perfect illustration of what happens and a great testimony to our world of your allegiance and a decision you've made. We're having our next baptism service in September. I trust if you haven't been baptized, if you know the Lord, that you will take this next step of obedience. Talk with me. Talk with one of our elders who love to be able to walk you through this. Secondly, making disciples was still a priority. Making sure people were understanding who God is, walking with them, encouraging them, strengthening them. This is a priority that needs to be every one of our lives. And lastly, bearing fruit was common. The bottom line is you can tell someone who walks with God how they treat you, how they forgive you. A person who walks with God is not divisive, doesn't bring disharmony. A person that walks with God loves others like Jesus 
loved others, sacrificially giving up their lives. A person who walks with God is not selfish, just isn't. Doesn't mean that there are times you don't fall back, but God convicts and God allows you to repent and continues to chip away all those things. You see, God's mission is unfinished. And each one of us get to be salt and light, share good news, and make disciples. We'll keep talking about what happens in Acts and trust that God continually inspires and convicts us as a church as we move forward. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for the adventure. We thank you again for the example. We thank you, dear Father, for your word that inspires us and convicts us. We thank you, dear God, for symbolism like baptism. But mostly, God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that lives in each one who is a child of God. And we have a choice each and every day to listen to that spirit or not to. Lord, when we listen, our lives change. Your world is affected and the church advances. God, may each of us walk with you closer and better. We pray all these things in your son's name.